Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm Kyla Hewson. I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Hello. And today we are joined by Corey Hardiman, who is a painter, a presenter, and a certified death doula who works on climate grief. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Biology and is trained in both architectural drafting and classical drawing. Her art combines elements of traditional illustration and technical drawing with a love of tonal painting and an eye for tension and movement, which I spend some time on your website, Corey. I love your artwork. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Yeah. I'm really excited to talk to you about um, climate grief, which is something that Kristen and I have been struggling with, especially since starting this podcast, I think. (laughs) (laughs) But first, I wanted to just ask you a quick question about something I saw on your website, which is um, part of your bio there was that for several years, you lived off grid in a hand-built yurt, and you made paintings in the brief intervals between tending to your four young children. What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. It seems that way to me too now. (laughs) It was... um let's say a a calamitous experiment. (laughs) Uh, So before I met my now ex-husband, I had gone to an exhibition at the museum in Victoria about Genghis Khan and seen a yurt. And at that time, my parents had many acres on Cape Breton Island. And my plan was to, was to go and live in Cape Breton in a yurt by myself because, I didn't have four children in in the mix at that time. <laughs> anyway, uh, at, at a certain point, we decided that we would try. We we wanted to live a bit more lightly, and uh, we were people of extremes at that point in our lives. <laughs> and so we did. We well, I should say, my ex husband built the yurt. He built the yurt by hand. And it was very small. It was 16 feet in diameter. And we moved it back and forth between wells in uh, the Caribou in British Columbia and just north of Prince George for about four years. And it was uh, it was challenging and huh, sort of magical and mostly exhausting. Yeah. How old were your kids at the time? So when we first moved into the yurt, we had three children, one of whom was an infant, uh, the eldest of whom was, I guess, six. So we had six, four, and a baby. And then we had six, four, two, and a new baby. (laughs) And then the marriage collapsed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, I'm sorry to hear about the ending, although it does sound like quite an adventure. (laughs) It was definitely an adventure. It was, it was a lot of, of hard physical labor. And I'll tell you, as a painter, I have to say, having had the experience of having to paint outside and, uh, you know, in between, you know, running around errands for children and feeding horses and trying to find water and store food properly and so on, you really find out what you want to do, you know, what what you're committed (laughs) to to doing. (laughs) Okay, Corey, so I was just wondering if you could kind of explain to us your journey to becoming a death doula, if you're comfortable with sharing that. Sure, absolutely. I think for someone that is comparatively young, I'm in my mid-40s, I have just had a lot of death in my life. Uh, My parents both died quite young. I 
had a a partner who died uh, coming up for seven years ago now, unexpectedly, very young. Just a, a lot of of death and dying has happened around me, and so one of the things that I realized when my partner died several years ago was that being around death is actually a skill, and that as as you have the opportunity to do it more, that you get better at it. And uh, it occurred to me that this is actually something that we really need, I think now in the middle of an extinction event more than ever. And yet it's something that very few people seem to have access to, partly because we don't die very often in our society. We're death phobic and grief phobic, and uh, people are really afraid of death. And so as, as I became more comfortable with being around deaths, I also became much more aware that that death is, first of all, not the worst thing that can happen, that it's a, a sort of a middle of the road experience, but also that there's a lot of skills that go with that, that I think people have a right to. I think the community has a right to uh, to know how to be with one of the most important events that ever happens to either to a grieving person or to a living being. It's one of the two major markers of being <laughs> a living being, right? So. Can you kind of describe what a death doula does for any listeners who might not know? Yeah, it's a it's an unregulated profession. It's much like birth doulas. So just as a birth doula is not, you know, a midwife, a death doula is not a palliative care nurse or a hospice professional. A death doula, one of the ways actually that it was described to me when I was taking the training, and I, I really love this description, is that a, a doula is like water. They just flow toward the low spot. So whatever is needed around someone's death, and that can be anything from helping with advanced care plans to uh, funeral plans to green burial, washing bodies, shrouding bodies, helping people to navigate the, the medical system, helping people to grieve, just talking to people that are in the middle of grief. Uh, it involves a lot of just making room for people to have intense emotional experiences. And it can also involve things like being in people's homes, helping them with things like meal preparation and so on, if they're if if that's something that they need help with. It really is a a very kind of flexible and adaptable thing. So just as a birth doula isn't isn't just in a in the birthing room, you know, cheering for people in labor, a death doula is, you know, is wherever the need is. Okay. Awesome. That's Really interesting and something I hadn't really thought about before I sat with you in your workshop back in September. And in the workshop that I was in, there was another person there who had also considered becoming a death doula. And I ended up becoming really good friends with her. And she was talking about um, all of the like fascinating ways that people think of grief and I don't know, like that whole workshop that that you did, that you facilitated, made me kind of rethink my own relationship to grief. And I was just wondering how your journey has been with your relationship to grief, um, either with the climate crisis in general or just as part of your journey of becoming a death doula. Yeah, I think the grief is is such a complex series of emotions. It's it's a huge experience and. I think that a lot of the time people think of grief as just being sad, but it is it is 
all of the things. There's joy inside of grief. There's a lot of humor often inside of grief. Um, the way I've come to think of grief is that it's an opportunity to build community, that I think that society is actually kind of built and fertilized by experiences of grief. I think it's a, it can be a profoundly connecting experience. And I think in the, the situation that we're in now, uh, where climate catastrophe is unfolding around us, you know, in new and horrifying ways constantly, the thing that we need the most is, is that community, a community that can grieve together, that can look for ways through together and can be resilient together. And grief builds resiliency like few other experiences. So I think that uh, learning to grieve is actually one of the most useful skills that we can access in our lifetimes. Yeah, I'm curious about like, um, what are some of the, I don't know how to put this, either the the biggest things that people get wrong about grief or like the biggest skills that you would suggest for somebody going through grief? I think the biggest skill I would suggest for somebody going through grief is curiosity and acceptance. I think that a lot of the time we have mirrored to us by a, a world that kind of medicalizes both death and grief, that grief is a problem that needs to be solved. And it is not a problem. It is a normal healthy human function. And when we are confronted by grief, it can feel all kinds of different ways. And we get very caught up in how it should feel, what the appropriate emotions are. And there aren't actually any appropriate emotions. Grief can feel like fear. It can feel like anger. It can also feel like giddiness or, or, or silliness. Like there's a lot of ways that the tension of those huge experiences comes out for people. And we're very, very quick to judge ourselves if we, if we feel, for example, relieved. Um, if someone we loved or if something, something that's been looming is, is, you know, has a, a, a death, then there's a lot of tension that's, that's relieved by that event, right? If some, something is suffering or, or just looming for a long period of time, there can be a tremendous feeling of relief. And nobody ever talks about that because people feel so much guilt. They feel as though people are going to think that they, they wanted the death when in fact, what they wanted was just some sort of return to life. And the huge thing I think is that people don't know how to do it. And because they don't know how to do it, they feel afraid. And when we feel afraid, we tend to get very, you know, shameful and judgmental about our own, our own stuff. And there's, there's nothing, nothing unnatural that happens in grief. It is just one of those huge things that happens to us. And we have to be open to all of it. We have to just let it move through us. <laughs> like the water analogy you're talking about earlier. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So when it comes to climate grief in particular, and I, I think someone brought this up in the workshop that we did um, in September, where's the line between f grieving over the world because we can, we're watching it die and, and feeling so hopeless that, like, hopeless that we're not doing anything about it? Um, the anxiety and the grief that surrounds the climate catastrophe is very, very complicated because there's no 
definitive end, right? That it's an unfolding situation. It's in many ways something that has already happened and in many ways something that has not yet happened. And so we're in the middle of grieving things that have happened while dreading things that may happen. And that can be confusing and overwhelming and we don't know which emotions are, again, the appropriate emotions. Um, so it's it can be really tricky to navigate. And often when we're just overwhelmed in that way, we shut down. We stop seeking connection with other people. We stop looking for solutions because we think we can't do anything. And I think that's actually the time when it is most important to find your community. And this is something I've talked about in the class that one of the things that we really truly need when we're grieving, and we don't always have access to in a death phobic society, is that we need to see our own grief mirrored back to us by our community. We need to see that other people are experiencing the same sense of loss that we are. And that is what funerals are for. That is what all kinds of rituals are for. But in the climate grief situation, we can't even be sure that other people will acknowledge that what we see happening is actually happening. And so we can start to feel crazy or we can feel, you know, untrusting or betrayed. We may just stop looking for connections if we feel like we have to explain ourselves over and over again or if people aren't taking our grief seriously. So I think that um, wherever possible, it's really important to find like-minded people so that you have that base level of discussion, you know, where everyone is in agreement, something bad has happened, something bad is happening. And you can look to each other and start thinking about what to do now. Because inside that grief, there's also hope. There's always hope inside grief. There's always joy inside grief. It might not feel like joy right in the moment, but it's there. And the way you can access it is by reaching out to other people that are having the same experiences as you. That that's how you build trust and that's how you build community. And that's, I think, how you build movements. And Kyla, I think in our, our last session, you had said something about how you feel that protests are, you know, take that, take on that kind of function that, that funerals also take on. And I think that's actually a really perspicacious observation that we do have access to um, the kinds of movements where people are feeling all of these big emotions and, there's a lot of energy in grief. There's a lot of, of it, it can come out as anger, it can come out as all kinds of things, but it can also come out as building social movements. And that's what we need to get to. I'm really enjoying the the, the grief sessions that we, we've been doing, which is a strange thing to say um, <laughs> about uh, talking about grief and, and climate. It's just... Um, what I found, especially in the last in the last session that we did, is the idea that grief comes with so much energy, and people yeah. don't know what to do with it. And so you were saying that when you grieve, you often will go to your workshop and you'll paint. Um, and yeah. the last time, yeah, and the last time that I grieved, I like wrote a bunch of poetry, which is wild because I do not write poetry, <laughs> and it's just that energy that just is like just trying to come out and we don't have a way to channel it anymore. Like you were telling that amazing story about the, <laughs> maybe you can share it here, about the horse that your family had to bury. And it's just an example of like that energy, you know? <laughs> yeah, I really, I've been thinking about this a lot because it actually, it hadn't actually occurred to me. I've, I'm familiar with the surge of energy, but it had never really occurred to me that it had a specific purpose. And uh, so a few weeks ago, my my kid's dad had this very ancient pony um, who died 
we had sort of thought that she would probably make it through until next winter, but she didn't. She died. She was on the property, and it was like, what are we going to do with this uh, 800-pound <laughs> animal who's <laughs> now lying dead in a paddock? And it was it was actually a really beautiful thing because the, the herd of horses that lives out there, they all sort of surrounded her. They all seemed to really acknowledge her death uh, in, in, in their very horse-like way. You know, they sniffed her and they sort of poked around with her, but they, they mostly just stood in a circle around her. And they were very, they seemed sad. They seemed, you know, but also accepting. And then the, the, the sort of practical part of it was that it was February in Prince George. <laughs> <laughs> so the ground is frozen and, you know, my ex doesn't have a backhoe. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what are we going to do? Should I get in touch with the neighbors and see about maybe paying someone to? And it was decided that the kids and my ex would dig a grave. And I thought, well, they're going to be traumatized by this. This is not, <laughs> this is, I did not think about this when I made the decision to have children many years ago. <laughs> That's large, large animals being disposed of was going to be part of that. But it was. And so they spent an entire weekend digging this enormous grave for Sonia through the frost and the ice. And they pulled her in there and they put her with her 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 favorite blanket and they gave her some apples and some oats. And it was so beautiful. And as they were digging that grave, I watched them just put all of their emotions and all of their love for each other and for her into that really hard physical work. And I thought, oh, that's what it's for. It never occurred to me <laughs> that that huge surge of energy actually has a function, like a physical function, and that is that you are supposed to bury your dead. I had never, never even occurred to me. I've thought about all kinds of things about bodies, about washing them in shrouds and how, how you know, the funeral industry pollutes the world and how to do that better. But I had never actually thought of the physical act of burial as an important part of grief until this happened. And and then I was talking to a, a former client, not she herself clearly was not a client because she's still alive, <laughs> but a, a family member had been. And we were talking about about the death in her family and how she had reacted, responded immediately by planting a garden. That was the first and only thing she could think of doing was to get her hands in the ground. And I thought back to, you know, deaths that I've experienced and how I've reacted to them. And I, I've always sort of gone straight to the ocean when I lived near an ocean. And, uh, you know, the, the urge to be a part of the earth, to, to, I don't know, to touch the earth, to feel that sort of return to the earth that your loved one is also experiencing in a very uh, literal way is really profound and and has a lot of I don't know there's a lot of metaphoric stuff around it but there's also a lot of just pure physical stuff around it a lot of a lot of energy can just go into the physical labor of grief yeah and I I love that story about the horse I really hope your kids don't get <laughs> any of that trauma you were worried about it sounds they're like fine. It was fine they're like they're fine about it and I mean they were sad obviously but I think if she had been taken off the property and buried elsewhere especially like in some big you know with 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 a backhoe or whatever it would have it would have lost that real loving intimacy that it had which was 
incredibly beautiful to witness. Yeah, and that's something that we've really lost in our like our, the way that we deal with death, like in the modern day. Like I can't, I don't, I, I even when you're putting down your pet, you go to the vet and they take care of the body. You know, mm-hmm. so it, it's just it's. I love that story because it's the perfect example of how. <sighs> we get this energy and we don't know what to do with it. And it's so easy to just have something to point it at, you know, like it's so, I think a lot of people end up um, working a lot when they grieve. Um, At least in my experience, I I definitely did that. And the people who were around uh, the same person who who passed away a couple of years ago, I I saw them also start to work a lot more. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like with the climate crisis, there, um, there's so many people, and it's just going to get worse as the years go by, that are experiencing this climate anxiety and this and this climate grief, and and they don't know where to channel that energy, um, or they're not channeling it at all. And mm-hmm. and I'm just wondering if you found um, how you're finding that in your work with people who are experiencing climate grief. Yeah, I, what I find with people that are experiencing climate grief is just that that very thing that they they don't know how to channel it. They don't know how to. And honestly, during COVID, it has been really difficult for people to channel things because a lot of the things we normally would do, a lot of the protests we would normally go to, we haven't been able to to take part in because, you know, we've we've had all of these restrictions and all of these concerns about keeping each other safe. And we are living in a time that that just makes it extraordinarily difficult to come together, right? Like to do the the normal things that we would do to grieve. And so I think that there's in the immediate future going to be a lot of deferred grief coming out in, I don't know how that's going to, to kind of show up for people. But yeah, I do notice with climate grief that people feel helpless a lot of the time, they feel hopeless. But I also think that the kinds of people that care about the climate, that care about the planet, are fundamentally hopeful people and creative people, generally speaking. I think that that people that truly shut it out, people that don't believe it's happening or or try to think of ways that it can materially benefit them are, are not the people that tend to get involved in movements. People that hurt over the the planet are people that are most likely to find creative ways to help the planet, I think. I'm curious about like, um, for the people that you've encountered who are experiencing climate grief, is it like, how abstract is it? Are, are people grieving over the loss of, you know, some specific element of their ecology? Or is it sort of a more general sense of, you know, we're all going to die and the reefs are all going to be gone. There's certainly a huge, a huge looming sense of dread for a lot of people, um, myself included, that sense that, you know, within our lifetimes, you know, this will be gone and that will be gone and, and stability generally is dissolving. But I also, there are really specific um, experiences as well, especially here in BC, Uh, where we've had both the really devastating fire seasons and the shocking floods of uh, last fall, all in a state, all in the space of one year that, you know, the town of Lytton was razed to the ground last summer by fires. And, you know, just a couple of months later, the, the highway was washed away. (laughs) 
Um, so people are experiencing personal losses, the losses of their actual homes or uh, of the familiar landscape around them. And that that is devastating for people. Um, that is a really hard thing for people to metabolize because often people have, have done things in that land, you know, throughout the course of their lives to, to, to try to shore it up against these kinds of catastrophes. And when they just, you know, come along and just destroy everything all in the space of a season, it's an awful lot for people to take in. But then there is also that, that much more abstract sense of, you know, grief over just everything, you know, the, the loss of the rainforest, the loss of the Great Barrier Reef, the, the loss of species at the astonishing rate that we're witnessing. You know, we, we grieve animals we've never seen, um, places we'll never go. And that is also completely legitimate. You know, there, there are so many things to grieve at the moment that uh, it's, hard, it's hard in a way to, to know where, where one thing begins and the other thing ends. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I resonate a lot with uh, what you're saying there. I think for a lot of people, there's sort of a lot of points of like micro grief where you'll read a news article or you'll see like an image or something. But I wonder whether um, you could talk a little bit about like the importance of like what kinds of actions can somebody take if they're sort of feeling those more abstract elements of climate grief or even if it's more specific but that they maybe they haven't been treating it like grief. Yeah, I think one of the really important things that we have to consider is that this is a long season. This is, I mean, hopefully quite long, <laughs> but that things that haven't happened yet haven't happened yet. And it's important to keep that perspective that, that we can look for you know, the, any of the myriad organizations that are working to intervene in, in the climate catastrophe and in habitat loss and in, you know, war and in all of the situations that compound the already, you know, devastating implications of climate change. But we also have to, in our own homes and in our own families and in our own heads, we have to treat ourselves as part of the world that is suffering, you know, part of the world that is experiencing sorrow and fear and anger over the state of things. We have to have some compassion for ourselves. And that can be really hard to do, especially as, you know, privileged white folks in, in Canada. It can be very, very difficult to look at ourselves and our own grief and think that it's worthy of our attention. But if we don't give it our attention, it it consumes us and it interferes with their capacity for intervening in positive ways. So I think um, we have to keep in mind that there are things that we can control and things that we can't control. We can do things in our own gardens. We can, you know, we can raise native pollinators. We can not use pesticides and herbicides. We can do all kinds of, of very small things that make huge differences to small lives. And I think those are really worthy things to focus on. We can work on wetland restoration right in our communities. We can work on reforestation projects. We can work on all kinds of small things, but we can also take a break every so often, right? Like, you know, 
the bad stuff doesn't go anywhere just because we take a day off. And I, I don't mean take a month off or take a year off, but every so often it's really good to take a rest, to check in with ourselves, to make some art about how we're feeling, about what's going on for us, um, to check in with our loved ones and make sure that they're okay. Like compassion is what's going to get us through this because compassion is what builds compassionate communities and only a compassionate community can intervene in a caring way in a planet that's in crisis. So I think that that's the way to go, like to recognize your grief, to recognize that you're struggling and to give yourself the space to experience those feelings, to give yourself the time to just like be sad. And I know we're all you know, working in capitalism and we're all overextended and it can feel like such a, such an excess to take an hour to, I don't know, write or make a painting or go for a walk or whatever, but we have to, we just have to make that time for ourselves because not only do we deserve it, it's actually our right as living things, right? Like (laughs) we have a right to a joyful life, just like any other animal. You know, for as long as we're alive, we, we, we will all end up dead. But while we're here, we have a right to experience the full array of being alive. And that's, that's part of the job is to find the time to make the time. That's, that's part of the work. Yeah, I'm curious as well about like the place of like memorial or ceremony in climate grief. I, yeah, one of the moments that resonated for me the most anyway, um, was visiting the like Athabasca glaciers and a few friends and I just took some time to really like reflect on how far it's receded and to actually feel those emotions. But it strikes me that it's not always obvious like when you should memorialize or how. So I don't know if you have any advice on that. Yeah, it's hard to know, right, how and when to memorialize. And I've actually been thinking about this quite a lot without necessarily coming up with any concrete answers to what to do about it. But I do think that those those rituals, the the rituals that we have around death and around sorrow and loss generally are are really, really important. And a huge part of those rituals generally is just putting our hands on things. And you know we we that's how we absorb what's what's happening. We touch things and we we look closely at things. I've often thought that grieving people are probably really pretty good ecologists because we notice things much more when we're in grief. We notice absences, but we also notice, you know, the sort of magical things that just happen all the time all around us, right? And I remember just after my partner died, going for a walk with my dog. And I guess it was a couple of months later because it was uh, it was just on the edge of freezing. And as we were walking along uh, by this ditch, I just happened to look down and I saw the water freeze. Like I saw the moment of its freezing where it almost just snapped together. And it was like, it was, it was just the most miraculous thing. And I, I can't think of anything more profound that could have happened in that moment. But to me, it seemed almost like the world coming back together in that instant. And when we give ourselves the opportunities to experience the ways the world comes together, the rituals sometimes just reveal themselves, right? That sounds very kind of woo, but it's true. I think we, in the moment of suffering, we often find the thing that is that is most important to us, the way to memorialize things. I had a, a late-term uh, miscarriage several years ago, just over a decade ago, and it was uh, it was awfully sad. It was 
terribly sad. It was also just at the time that my marriage was collapsing. And it was also, honestly, a pregnancy I didn't want, but I was still terribly sad. And when that happened, I had my baby's ashes. I had just kept them with me for a really long time. And then I made a series of paintings about them, just putting the bag of ashes in the landscape in various places, because what I was trying to do was to think of a place that I loved enough to put him. And uh, so I made all these paintings and they were tremendously, I mean, I've never shown most of them to anyone, but for me, they were, they were profoundly healing and profoundly important. And I think that the way we memorialize things is often, if there's no, guideline, if there's no sort of societally accepted way of doing it, they tend to be so personal, so intimate, um, that we may not show anyone, but they are, they are very, very important. And I like what you said about the Athabasca glaciers. I've also done that, just taking some time and looking and just letting it, letting it flow through you, right? Like the, the awareness of what, what's been lost, but also the awareness of what's still there, what we're here to preserve, what we have the opportunity to preserve if we play our cards right. And honestly, I think that one of the lies that capitalism tells us is that we have to succeed in order for it to have been worthwhile. But I truly believe that even if it's a losing fight, it's a just fight, it's the right fight, and we should all be in it because it's the right thing to do. And in that way, I think we really honor our grief when we struggle to to keep what's still with us, what's still good, what's still beautiful. And there's a lot, right, that that, that is the right thing to do. And that can be a really powerful way of just letting grief do good work. Yeah, Corey, I'm reminded of um, something that you said that I like wrote down after um, the first climate grief session that that I joined you for, which was how you talked about how grief is just love. They're like the same thing. And so the more you love something, the more deeply you'll grieve it. And the way that you you kind of said that made me rethink how I had been looking at the climate crisis. I hadn't really considered how I had been maybe experience like I knew I was experiencing climate anxiety but I hadn't really thought about grief in relation to to the climate I it's just not something that had like occurred to me and it does I don't know the the way that you said that um made me think like damn I really love the planet <laughs> no wonder I'm so angry all the time <laughs> yeah well and anger is part of love too right like but yeah I I absolutely people say that grief is the flip side of love or it's the price you pay for love but I actually don't think that I think it is literally love I think that it's the work of love when you love something that is the work you sign up for you sign up for the joyful parts of loving but you also inevitably sign up for grieving because either you're going to die or they're going to die somebody's going to die in the course <laughs> of that of that experience right and it, it's it's a courageous thing to love something knowing that you will inevitably have to grieve it. And we need courage. Like courage is just like what we need right now more than we've ever needed it. So yeah. Yeah. I almost feel like people are afraid to, to love the planet and to get involved with the climate movement because, because it does feel like a, a losing battle. And so, you know, if you, if you don't get too invested, then you won't be too hurt when it fails. Right. Yeah. But what a shame, right, to live a life where you just don't care enough to get hurt. That would that would just be <laughs> <Yeah>. terrible. 
Yeah. Well, the other thing is, I think participating is restorative in a certain sense. Like you can't, <laughs> you can't avoid feeling these feelings because. Oh no, they're coming for you one way or another. So essential. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's just yeah. part of being alive and a human. Like you, you get to have these feelings, like the good ones and the bad ones, all of them. They're they're all coming for you. There is no avoiding them. And if you if you try to avoid them, they'll just find sneakier ways to get at you. So you might as well just throw in, right? Because it's going to happen. We're planting some trees. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's something that um, someone said during that session as well. Kat, uh, who is a poet that I got to know. Oh, she's that, great. Yes. That, um, first session. She's so lovely. And what she said during your session was that, um, I think her grandfather used to say this, but that um, grief is just love with nowhere to go. Yeah. And so if you're feeling like grief towards the climate, like channel it somewhere, you know? Yeah, like- <laughs> yeah for sure. And that's the other thing my therapist always says too, is it hurts where you care. And I just, I think that's so important to remember. I mean, you know, lots, there are things that hurt that maybe you should care less about but the the planet's a pretty good place to put a lot of care and (laughs) the more that I don't know the the more opportunities you have to grieve something the more opportunities you have to rejoice when you see something good as well because it's not like the only things that are happening are bad things right and the more engaged we are and the more attention we pay and the more we love and the more we care the more we have an opportunity to participate in the, in the joyful things and in the, the good things that are happening. Yeah. I, I like that. I like the, the perspective that you have brought for me anyways, about rethinking grief in general and grief towards the climate crisis. I have learned a lot (laughs) in the sessions that we've done together and it's made me feel like I don't know. It's made me feel worse in that I've been thinking about climate grief more. <laughs> and, and so I'm like, oh, man. But um, it's also making me feel more energized good. to do something. So I think the work that you're doing is incredible. Oh, good. Well, because, you know, I mean, it's one of the things, too, that I, I like everybody else, I often feel completely helpless, right? But I have this thing that I can do. And I think we all have a thing that we can do. And when we when we get together and do the things we can do, then that's a hell of a lot better than doing nothing, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering what you might say to somebody, because I know there there's a fair number of people who will, you know, explicitly not look for climate news um, as sort of a protective thing. They want to shield themselves from what's really happening. And like I wonder if you could talk a little bit about when that's helpful and when it's harmful? I think that's helpful uh, in short term, you know, bursts where you're just where it's part of like keeping yourself going, right? Like, because a lot of energy can go into that kind of doom scrolling, looking for negative news thing. And I as a doom scroller, you know, I have a lot of (laughs) (laughs) a lot of compassion for people that fall into that trap. But if you're if you find that you are specifically blocking out Uh, news about the climate. I think that that's an area where maybe you should consider why, (laughs) why that might be, because you, we can't really protect ourselves in that way. Like not knowing what's happening does not preserve us from what's happening. I think that what I would say to somebody would be that it is, 
it is important to know your limits. It's important to know how much you can take. But if what you can take is nothing, then you're you're going to have a, a sort of a crisis of resiliency uh, sooner rather than later, I would think. And it, it might be worth talking to someone or thinking about why why you want to block that out. Because I, I think feelings of helplessness, they're feelings of helplessness. They don't literally, they're feelings. They're not literal helplessness. They don't actually mean that there's nothing that you can do. They're, they're just a feeling. And if we, if we try to lock ourselves away from having any uncomfortable feelings, we miss most of life, right? So <laughs> I, think, I think we just, we have to, you know, we have to give some consideration to what level of exposure we can cope with. Like if, if we're really going to spiral because we, you know, we feel so, so afraid of the future, then yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's tough and that's understandable. And that is probably a place to like, I don't know, do some reading and take some space, <laughs> but we can't just block it out. Like it, it's not even, I don't think it's even really ethical to, to block it out. I think we have to, we have to do some work in the witnessing department. You know, people can sustain, I guess, moral injuries when they, when they see things happening that they have no feeling of agency in whatsoever and that, that are so counter to their values and the things that matter to them. But I think that the, the cure for an injury like that is to, to look for ways to intervene that honor your values and that have that, you know, that you can affect in a, in a good way. And I suppose I would say baby steps. If somebody is so, you know, is so overwhelmed by bad news, then I would say maybe start looking for, for good news in small places like your yard or local park, like maybe start putting out some water for the bees, maybe start, you know, like just looking for little things you can do and then building on them as you go, because we got to get in there somewhere. There has to be an entryway back into the world. Yeah, it sort of seems similar to how when you have like a crisis or a disaster in a community, you have like a lot of mutual aid that springs up just sort of naturally from it. And maybe we can do the same with the climate. Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, there is a helping instinct and often it's stymied when things are so big and overwhelming. But people generally are want to help each other. Like we are a, we're a pro-social kind of animal. And there are ways to channel that. There is no shortage of organizations. And even if people are, are you know, not wanting to put their, I don't know, their feelings or their personal lives or whatever at risk going to protests or whatever, there's places to put your money if you have money and there's places to put your volunteer hours if you have hours and there's places to put your art and your writing and your thoughts. And I don't know, there's no shortage of, of worthy places to do something. And often it doesn't even matter what you do as long as you do something. I think that's absolutely true. I think that's really important. And it's something that I've been really coming to terms with in the last like six months is that if, if we have no hope, then there's nothing we can do. And we're all just going to lie around feeling sad all the time, which isn't great, you know? So. Yeah. Hope is work. Like hope is, hope is a job and, and it's not easy, right? Like it's, it's very, and it's not like this kind of like, it's all going to be fine, right? Obviously it's not all going to be fine. Many things are already not fine, but it is important to value the things that might be fine by 
behaving in a hopeful way, right? By acting in a hopeful way and in a, a generous way, like hope breeds generosity and, and care and it, it values the future. That's the, the effect of hope is that it values the future and we have to, we have to value the future. Otherwise there is no point. Well, I feel like that's a really positive place to end <laughs> an episode that it's funny because like normally our episodes are like huge bummers and to to then do an episode about grief and have it be one of our more uplifting episodes is uh, is really incredible. And it's why I, I was so pleased when you said that you would come on and talk to us, Corey. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm just thrilled. I'm really honored to be asked and uh, you guys asked great questions. So that was that was really fun. Fun talking about grief. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you make you make it so accessible, and and you make it you make it something that people can really chew on in a way that I hadn't experienced before, even after having like experienced a pretty major loss. You know, so yeah. I I just wanted to say thank you, and uh, and uh, can people find you just on your website, CoreyHardeman.com? People can find me on my website. Um, I'm on Facebook all the time because I have an internet addiction. <laughs> I'm on Instagram at CJ Hardeman. I'm not on Twitter to preserve my mental health. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I will link to your Instagram and to your Facebook. I checked out your Instagram. I think I added you today. Love the artwork Thank you post you. there and the memes. <laughs> I'm big on memes. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll share that. And, uh, and I wanted to just say, yeah, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm going to think about that horse story a lot, I think. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. There's some details I left out. <laughs> I can fill you in on later if you like. <laughs> um, if listeners want to find us, Kristen and I are on Twitter at Pullback Podcast. And uh, we love fresh memes, so you can send them to us there. And oh, and we're a member of the Harbinger Media Network. See, I remember. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Catch you on the next episode. <laughs>